Hey, my name is Zach, and this is the Plaid Jacket Philosopher, the podcast for tradespeople and the blue-collar middle class. I'm hoping to punch a few holes in the stereotypes that surround blue-collar workers and hopefully share a lot of the stories behind how we got into our line of work and the honest joy you can get from working outside of the office space. The plan is to mix in interviews as well as some solo stories from job sites, fatherhood, and personal experiences that led me to where I am today. Some will be funny, some will be personal, but hopefully any and all content here can help broaden what your opinion is of the blue-collar middle class. This week's episode is largely influenced by uh, the riots and the protestings and the Capitol Hill in Washington. Um, Anyway, I'm going to try to kind of maintain a roughly apolitical approach to this. But, you know, this episode is kind of inspired by everything that's happened through 2020 with all the different riots, different protests, the looting and whatever else happened. I mean, you're all more than aware of it. Uh, And then... It kind of got capped off at the beginning of 2021 with this event. And I'm going to, again, make a really loose connection because obviously the motivation behind these events is way different than my experience. But I have, again, limited experience, but I was not involved in, but I was in the midst of a riot in Vancouver in 2011 for you know, the most Canadian reason you could possibly imagine to riot other than maybe maple syrup shortages across the country. But we were rioting over the loss of a hockey game, game seven Stanley Cup finals. It's a big deal here. Vancouver still hasn't won a Stanley Cup. It was a big deal. But anyway, it's a pretty stupid reason to riot, especially compared to what's going on nowadays. And especially the social injustices and what really triggered the anger in 2020. A lot of that, I think the motivation behind that was a little bit well, not a little bit. It was a lot more reasoned and valid than kind of the the violence and the, I don't know what you want to call it. I see it being called so many different things on the TV, but I don't really, I don't fully understand American politics. So I don't even know exactly what the protest slash attack on Capitol Hill was for. It's something I would probably research more, but I'm not I'm not that inclined to. I just know that this is more focused on the mentality of the mob and what happens in a riot or in kind of a a big groupthink situation like this. So again, keep in mind that this is going to be very anecdotal evidence. This is from one riot that I was loosely involved in, didn't take part in, but I was right downtown and in the midst of it and then comparing it to kind of the craziness of what's happening or what's been happening over the past 10 months. So, okay, so when I was in the Vancouver riot, basically what happened is we had, we were staying at uh, a friend's house watching the game, turned off the game with, I don't know, 45 seconds left. I didn't want to watch the Bruins lift the cup over the Canucks. And we had no idea. We were kind of on the outside of the city and we had to walk back through the downtown core to get to the SkyTrain. And so, like I said, we turned off the game with about 45 seconds left, so we didn't see any of the following news broadcasts that were basically explaining what was going on downtown. And as we started walking, we were a little bit outside of the city core, the city center. But as we were going, we kind of saw a few flipped over garbage cans. I think we even saw one burnt out dumpster, and we kind of figured out ah, this is like the extent of it. That's not too, too bad. And so we made it downtown, it was pandemonium, you know, there were cars on fire, police cars flipped, torched, Uh, people were looting, smashing windows, running around, there was 
uh, riot control police launching tear gas and marching down the street, kind of lockstep, clearing and sweeping streets. And it was uh, it was it was nuts. It was like nothing I've ever experienced. And we we kind of made it down to the SkyTrain station, then realized that they had locked down the whole downtown core, that there's no way we were getting out of the city. And so then we had to make our way back across the city to the apartment building. Uh, I think the biggest highlight from that night was probably we were trying to kind of deke along the alleyways across the main streets in Vancouver. And we got to one street and you could kind of see, or we got, we were anyway at a, a T in the alleyway. Uh, we were trying to cross this main busy street and there was a crowd there. And so we were kind of just hanging out in the corners, trying to wait to see if it would disperse or whatever. Then all of a sudden, everybody starts running in one direction to our left. And then, you know, all of a sudden the street's clear and we kind of poke our heads out. We're like, all right. And we start to walk across the road and all of a sudden you hear thump, thump. And there's these two little tear grass grenades that were launched. And, you know, we freaked out. Like, I think there was four of us trying to make it back to this this apartment so we quickly threw our like hoodies up over our face and ran across the street, ducked into the next alleyway and kept making our way across the road. But, you know, it was a it was a wild experience. Um, I must say, like you could feel it in the air. It was a different energy. And before the game, actually, I, I should have backtracked and said this at the beginning, but we were sitting down having beers at this one place on Granville Street, which is kind of one of the main drags in Vancouver. And we were having beer and we saw... I want to say it was probably between 18 to 25 people in total, but, you know, usually walking in groups of three to four, I think the biggest group was six to eight that we saw, but it was people with like their balaclavas just kind of folded up on top of their heads like a toque, and then they were wearing all black, and they had a shirt that says, I just came here for the riots, and if you know any history of Vancouver and hockey, we also rioted in 1994 when we lost in the Stanley Cup Finals, so that's kind of the precedent that was set. And so when these people came down, you know, nobody really seemed to pay it any attention. At least I didn't notice it. Like we were surrounded by hockey fans. Everybody else there was hockey fans. They were really there for, to watch the game, to hopefully see Vancouver finally lift a cup on in their home arena. But there were these few people sprinkled here and there who were obviously there for, you know, different reasons. They weren't there because they were hockey fans. They didn't have any Canuck gear or any Bruins gear. They were there to participate in a riot and my guess incite one. And so that's what that's what really transpired. I mean, the next day or the next week, I should say, as all the photos, videos kind of came out and you saw the extent of the damage to the downtown core and then the way the people came together the next day, which really it should have been the highlight of the story is the way that the residents came together people bust in, sky trained in, whatever, to come in and clean up the downtown core after all the damage that was done. But, you know, it left a, a pretty nasty scar on the city. Um, it made Canuck fans look bad. It made the city of Vancouver look bad. And it was just, it was a horrible event. But what I'm trying to get at here is these few kind of quote-unquote bad actors who were there for the wrong reasons um, incited this. But it had such a heavy kind of energy almost in the air. You could feel it. It was different. It was, I even actually texted, I know my mom and my younger brother were there watching the game at one of the outdoor, the outdoor viewing parties. And I think I texted her with probably five minutes or less to go in the game. And I said, you guys have to get out of the city. Like we could just tell 
that something was going to happen. It it felt that way. You could, it was palpable. And so they did get out. Thankfully, I didn't get out that night because again, I was at a friend's apartment a little bit outside of the course. So I wasn't kind of immersed in it. And I figured, well, I'm, you know, 22, I can get my, my way out of the situation. No problem. I didn't expect them to literally lock down the whole city. But again, so what I'm, what I'm getting at here is just the, the mentality and how, how intoxicating that can be. And really the vital need to kind of keep your own personal moral compass intact in any of this, if this makes sense. And again, like I know that it's not the same as what's happening in the States, especially in 2020 with, you know, the George Floyd protests and everything like that. And I also understand that, you know, 95, 98%, whatever it was, was peaceful. That, that's not what I'm talking about here. I understand that there's moral reasons to have outrage and to protest. I, I get that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when it turns bad and what the average person kind of goes through in that situation. Like for me and my friends, we were just trying to get out of the downtown core. We kind of kept our heads kind of on a swivel. We kept fairly level-headed. I mean, it was it was pretty freaky, but we didn't uh, we didn't panic and we d- certainly didn't join in, which... Um, I don't know. I, I think a lot of it is at least because we really, I, I I kind of fear what may have happened if I was there by myself. I don't think that I would have participated, but I can't put it past me, you know, I just knowing what that felt like, but having my best friend there and us kind of holding each other accountable, I know it factored into my decision making looking back on it. I hope that I still would have had that same kind of fortitude regardless if I was there by myself, but I know that having him there as a support system really helped anchor me in what was going on all around me and kind of helped me block out the noise, block out that that craziness that was going on all around me. And it really just helped me, again, just keep a level head and try to get out of there with, you know, my limbs intact and, you know, not getting tear gassed on the way. So I'm going to read, there's going to be a couple quotes in here from a book that I've been reading. This year, It's it's probably the most... It's one of the books that have had the most impact on me, especially with what's going on now politically, socially, and just kind of the madness uh, that everybody gets into and how polarizing everything is because this book is a really good, it's a good warning sign, I would say, of what can happen if you lose your own individual moral compass and you start to fall into that groupthink. And so here's one of the quotes. I fear that we live in a world in which war and racism are ubiquitous, in which the powers of government mobilization and legitimization are powerful and increasing, in which a sense of personal responsibility is increasingly attenuated by specialization and bureaucratization, and in which the peer group exerts tremendous pressures on behavior and sets moral norms. And so that again, that goes right into what we're talking about now. I mean, this is also talking about the the overreach of government and it getting its tendrils really into the people. This is referring again to Nazi Germany and following police battalion. What is it? Police battalion uh, 101. Sorry, I just had to check the title of the book there. Um, So basically what happened, they started running out of soldiers. They were running out of people to basically be the cleanup squad behind the, the Nazi military machine and to basically they started bringing in white collar, blue collar, typical people and bringing them into this 
reserve police battalion. So they would go in behind and they would essentially carry out the final solution. That's not what they were originally told they were going to do, but slowly um, and gradually they eroded away at kind of the individual blockages and hesitation to do that and honestly outright disgust with what they were doing but they eroded away at it over time sorry ugh, had to burp but the show must go on so they eroded away at the individual responsibility until it became this group mentality where in order to pull yourself out of it it was nearly impossible you, like the worst thing that you wanted to do at least what these soldiers were the last thing that they wanted to do was to kind of I don't know, expose themselves as not part of the crowd, not part of the in-group, and go against those social pressures, which were immense. They were under direct orders, which, again, okay, so I'm going to roll into this next quote just because it kind of references, it references this exact test that, uh, that they talk about. So, along with ideological indoctrination, a vital factor touched upon but not fully explored in Milgram's experiments was conformity to the group. The battalion had orders to kill Jews, but each individual did not. Yet 80 to 90% of the men proceeded to kill, though almost all of them, at least initially, were horrified and disgusted by what they were doing. To break ranks and step out, to adopt overtly nonconformist behavior was simply beyond most of the men. It was easier for them to shoot. And so just to give like a rough reference point, you can look it up if you'd like to, but when they're talking about Milgram's experiment, they're talking about an experiment in which the test subject was basically put in front of a control panel and they then there was another person who was the kind of the victim in their experiment but this person was told to electrocute the victim uh, at varying voltages going up to i believe it was 450 volts so pretty severe shocks and it, basically there was the experiment was done when it was up to their free will and how much power or how much um lethality and pain they wanted to inflict on the other person i mean nobody was killed in this experiment it was a controlled experiment but basically it was just viewing how people would take on that responsibility of harming another human being and the results were i mean what i would kind of expect but they just kind of solidified the idea is that if they were given direct orders to do it it relieved the personal responsibility. They were no longer in charge of the decisions they were making. So it made it a lot easier to shock people to a lot higher voltages, shock them for longer, higher repetitions. When it, you alleviate that responsibility of choice from the individual, then you're able to push it a lot farther because you, you're more detached from it. So anyway, you can look it up. That's Milgram's experiment. But in this quote, what they're talking about is just the way that these people, 80 to 90% of them when they were interviewed, had huge levels of disgust to what they were doing to what they were being ordered to do but they still did it anyway i believe it was about it was roughly 10 percent of the battalion that outright refused to do it um they were kind of mocked bullied they were definitely singled out by a lot of the people overseeing them not all of them they're actually it's an amazing story with reserve police battalion 101 but uh, Major Trapp, who was in charge of the whole battalion, he did tell people at the beginning that they did not have to shoot, but there were other officers and other people in kind of power below him, but in more direct control of those individuals who would really intensely pressure people 
to be involved, right? And it came down to ridicule, to physical beatings, whatever it may be. There was a lot of a lot of downward pressure from the people in power for the individual policemen to be involved in these these war crimes. And now, sorry, as often happens, I'm I'm off on a bit of a tangent. So the way that this comes back is it's talking about just basically the the difficulty in nonconformity, uh, in stepping outside of the group. And again, going back to my personal experiences in in the Vancouver riot in 2011. Like, it's a thick energy in the air. Those few bad actors who were there to incite a riot, probably win or lose. It probably wouldn't have mattered. I have a feeling that would have happened that night. It would just it was obviously a lot easier to start with the loss because people were angry, not happy. But when that those few people were able to incite a mob to do something that those individual people would not have done generally. I'm convinced of it. I mean, we had beers with them. We were talking to people downtown all day before we went to to settle into my buddy's apartment to watch the game. I am completely convinced that if those few people weren't there, if there weren't those kind of little sparks, that little, I don't know, just the match to set the flame, that it wouldn't have happened the way it did. And I'm also sure, like, okay, again, so there's stories, especially up in Canada, I don't think we have the full story of anything that happened down south in any of the George Floyd protests or, you know, the the race protests down south. But then the few ones of them that did kind of get violent, turn into looting and destruction of private property and everything, like those ones, a lot of the time it seemed like there may have been some bad actors in there who incited it. And it's so easy to fall victim to that that passion and that crazy amount of energy that's in the air as soon as as soon as somebody else takes that initial step for you, once that first step is kind of stepped over and accomplished, everything else just starts to fall like dominoes and people start to get caught up in it. They don't even think anymore. It's, it's You're reacting more in an emotional sense. Like you're not logically thinking things out anymore. It's just, I mean, I think it's human nature. It feels good to destroy stuff sometimes, especially with just the level of hurt and pain that a lot of people are going through now, especially that's all exacerbated by the lockdown, by people losing their income, by people losing their job, by, you know, people being, families being torn apart by suicide or drug addiction, alcoholism, whatever it may be. Like there's so many factors right now influencing everybody's kind of personal idea and just you know, our mindset with everyday life right now. So then you throw something like that and throw gasoline on the fire. It's going to get out of control in no time flat. Like the basically, I mean, today's society, it's, it's a powder keg in a lot of cases. And you're seeing things blow up here and there, especially in the States, obviously. But we have, we have, you know, protests and stuff up here in Canada too. A lot of the, I don't know what it is, the anti-mask stuff or whatever. There's a lot of those protests up here too. And I'm not going to be involved in any of them, but I can, I understand why people are so upset. Like it's, it's a tense time. There's a lot of tension in the air, wherever you go, you go like this pandemic, the lockdowns, and then the racial issues in the States. And I, again, I don't fully understand like what, what was even being protested yesterday at Capitol Hill, as far as I understood. And I'll admittedly say that I was kind of, I don't know, voluntarily ignorant to what's been going on since the election. As far as I had known, you know, the Electoral College was counted, Biden was declared a winner, 
And then I didn't really realize what all this stuff was until a couple days ago, people, you know, you started seeing on social media, like, oh, January 6th, January 6th. And I didn't really understand what's going to happen. But I still don't. I don't know what they were protesting. Like, to me, it seems like the legal proceedings were all followed. And Biden was declared the winner. I mean, that's democracy. You may not agree with it, but that doesn't give you the right to just, I don't know, bulldoze property like that storm, storm the Capitol building. I Anyway, I, I don't want to get this into a political thing, more just the idea of groupthink and how dangerous and how tense and volatile those situations can become, especially at the heightened emotional state that all of us are in nowadays. And now this next po- quote, sorry, may come across as a little bit bleak, I guess, but I don't think so. I think it's more of a challenge. I th- I, that's the way I would view it anyway. So here's the next quote. Bauman argues that most people slip into the roles society provides them, and he is very critical of any implication that faulty personalities are the cause of human cruelty. For him, the exception, the real sleeper, is the rare individual who has the capacity to resist authority and assert moral autonomy but who is seldom aware of this hidden strength until put to the test. Now, this is, again, something that, you know, it can come across as overtly negative. He's saying that basically the rarer individual is somebody who can resist authority and still kind of maintain that moral that moral individuality in a situation like this. To him, that's that's the rarest type of person, that generally it's pretty easy for people to get caught up in the moment and commit all kinds of crazy things that they wouldn't generally do. And I I definitely would agree. Like, I do think that, that it is difficult to stand up to that crowd and to kind of just, not even just walk away, but to try to de-escalate a situation. I, again, I don't know. I've never really been put into that situation. For me, when it came to the riot that I was in, I had a sole goal of just getting out of there and getting getting back to the apartment and, you know, just getting myself away from that situation. To, to me, the way it felt anyway, and I imagine that it would have been impossible. Like I remember seeing a few videos that surfaced the week after of people who did try to intervene and stop people from, say, breaking windows and looting stores or torching cars. They got the shit beat out of them, like badly with hockey sticks, with baseball bats, fists, bottles, whatever it was. Like they they were in rough shape. And so I mean, I think when it gets to a certain point, it's, you know, it's tough to stand up as an individual in a moment like that. And it's really, you kind of just got to gotta look out for your own personal safety. I mean, especially nowadays, I'm trying to put myself in that situation now, that being 10 years later. I, I don't think that I would be trying to stop somebody from breaking into a store or torching a car when things were that heated because you know I've got kids at home now I've got a family to provide for I've got a wife to you know care and protect and I I wouldn't have been able to do that if I really put myself on the line and got myself injured or killed uh, at, at a riot but in saying that I mean you can still have that moral autonomy to step back not participate and hopefully intervene and step in before it gets to that stage and it's something that i would challenge you know anybody to keep in mind again especially nowadays where things are kind of crazy tensions are high uh, emotions are high and the, the worst part about to me anyway i've i've echoed this before but the worst part about these lockdowns is just not knowing when they're going to end when there's you know just a big question mark we don't have an end date yet and that brings about a lot of stress, a lot of confusion, 
for me anyway, a lot of frustration, to be honest, is just, I don't know how to plan for anything in the future. And that's when I start to kind of get stressed and lose it a little bit. But when it comes to these mob mentality situations, I mean, again, that's the same thing. It's a high, high stress situation. It's really easy to get lost in it, to lose yourself to the crowd, to the energy all around you. And again, when everybody's doing it, it's really easy to fall in line and just start participating because you don't feel that same sense of responsibility. And it's just something that I would really encourage you guys to keep in mind. Um, Again, I mean, I'm in Canada, so we don't have this same level of tension and same level of craziness going on right now. But it it always kind of feels like it could be around the corner. I mean, like I said, it's just, it's a tense time right now. Everybody seems to be a little bit on edge closer to kind of their snapping point. So it's something that I think we could all keep in mind going forward. And now one thing that I don't want to overlook or just bypass completely is that obviously there are legitimate reasons to be upset, to protest. But again, this is talking about the small percentage of ones, and it was accentuated and highlighted yesterday by what happened on the Capitol buildings in Washington. This is talking about the small percentage of ones that turn violent, um, turn into looting, rioting, burning of private property, that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that there aren't reasons to be upset and to protest. I'm just saying don't fall into that really high high emotional state where you're not thinking anymore and you lose your rational mind. Sorry, I know this one's getting a little bit longer, especially for a monologue episode, but I don't know, this last week has kind of been crazy and it's just, I don't know, it's something that I I really kind of felt compelled to talk about. So anyway, I'm going to bang off two quick quotes here. These are from the book I'm presently reading, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Um, He's a psychiatrist and a neurologist who was imprisoned in multiple Nazi concentration camps. But anyway, it's an incredible book so far. I'm about halfway through, but here's the couple of quotes. So, for the world is in a bad state, but everything will become still worse unless each of us does his best. And then the next one, a human being is not the one thing among others. Things determine each other, but man is ultimately self-determining. What he becomes within the limits of endowment and environment he has made out of himself. In the concentration camps, for example, in this living laboratory and on this testing ground, we watched and witnessed some of our comrades behave like swine while others behaved like saints. Man has both potentialities within himself. Which one is actualized depends on decisions and not on conditions. So, okay, so the first one, with the world is in a bad state, but everything will become still worse unless each one of us does his best. I mean, that's that's pretty self-explanatory. It's a short little quote. But it's just something to keep in mind. I mean, you may feel like your actions don't matter, like you're just lost in a crowd or you're caught up in the momentum. That's not true. I mean, the world's made out of individuals. We all have to make our own individual choices. And ultimately, you know, that we will be kind of, I don't know, judged and we're determined by our, our decisions. So just do your best out there. Like just do whatever you can, the little, whatever little thing you can contribute to make, make society a little bit better, whatever that may be. I mean, I'm not trying to give you some pep speech here. It's just, it's the little things that count. And if everybody does that little step, that little bit farther, I mean, it it turns into a wave, right? So, and then the second one, again, I'll just realize kind of the last there, reread the last part, but man has both potentialities within himself. That's being either a saint or a swine, which one is actualized depends on decisions and not on conditions. So that's again, making that 
individual, that personal choice, no matter what's going on around you, whatever kind of noise or distraction is happening around you, it always comes down to a personal decision. You can take yourself out of that situation. You can you can position yourself differently. You can do whatever you want, but it really, it comes down on you. And so I would urge you to try to keep that in mind, especially nowadays. I know it's difficult for me too. I mean, again, a lot of it falls down to social media, which I keep saying I'm going to try to avoid, but it's tough to avoid. It's like a car crash. You can't look away. And it's, especially nowadays, I mean, the social interactions are a lot less. So you get stirred up really easily by reading all these different opinions. And it's, you know, you can start to like, I don't know how many times now what I'm doing and this, maybe you guys want to try this too, because I just have a policy of not arguing online anymore. If I see, see something that I disagree with, like I may make a comment if it's on a news site or something, but that's it. If somebody comments back arguing, I'm not, I just drop it. I log off or, you know, turn off notifications for that post. I, I don't care anymore. Like I'm, I just, I don't want to fall into that trap because I know how easy it is, especially nowadays. Because again, I'm tense. I'm frustrated with everything that's going on. And I'm, but I don't want to contribute to that level of anger. I don't want to piss somebody else off on some other computer screen because I'm not really going to change anybody's mind anyway. All right. So now switching gears a little bit. How is this applicable to work life? Well, in my personal experience, it's been mainly on larger job sites, uh, in the oil field in particular, where we would have electrical crews of anywhere between 60 to you know 250 electricians on site at a given time it's pretty easy for groupthink to kind of take hold um, within certain crews or even across the full site and so this usually takes the form of you know ostracizing one individual or one little group and it's yeah it's it's not it's not usually a good thing. I mean, some people kind of earn that uh, that little that shunning that they get from the rest of the crew. But when it happens, it's unfortunate regardless, because that isn't the type of situation that anybody wants to be coming to work in. That's not that's not how you want to be living. And a lot of us spend a lot of our time at work. So that's not something that you want to be spending eight to 12 hours a day in a miserable spot where you're kind of isolated from the group you're isolated from the conformity I guess you're you're outside of that so anyway so that's something to keep in mind really try to avoid that on job sites realize that maybe not everybody is going to get along all the time but that you know you're all there for a common goal try to find the common purpose in why you guys are at work rather than looking at differences I uh, I've found any way that it just makes the days the weeks the months go by a lot smoother on those long-term projects where you're day in and day out with the same people. You know, it, it helps if you guys can at least get along or have some level of civility across site. Now, relationships, obviously, you're not typically going to have a groupthink mentality when it comes to a personal relationship with a spouse, a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it may be. But what this can come down to is sometimes getting rooted into a specific mindset. Like a lot of the times when you look at these big, groups or riot situations, whatever, when that kind of devolves into that that state, it's almost more of an ideological like frenzy. You're not really thinking clearly, you're reacting. It's a lot of snap judgments. It's a lot of, you know, you're you're really it's almost like a religious fervor. So keep that in mind with relationships too. You want to try to keep a level head, think things through rationally, you know, 
try to avoid snap judgments or acting out of anger or frustration. Um, a lot of the time, for myself anyway, that means just taking a step back, just walking away for a couple minutes, clearing your head, getting over whatever that initial reaction may be, and then coming back to it calmly, collected, and willing to actually have a compromise and have a conversation because obviously that's the biggest key in a relationship is communication and trust. So really try to avoid reacting to everything as opposed to coming into it with a fresh set of eyes, calmly collected, and again, just open to have that conversation. And for me, when it comes to being in a mentor position, be that with my children or apprentices, it's all about setting an example. Especially with my kids, I don't want them to necessarily see me getting angry at everything. And, you know, if there's a reason to be angry, and for me, usually when I can tell that there's a reason, is I'm still fed up with it hours or days later. Like, it's something that's still burning. And, uh, but I don't, I try not to lash out. That, that's not the way that I want to show them how to deal with anger. I want them to to deal with it constructively. It's not just a matter of lashing out and breaking something beside you. So, for me, when I'm thinking of this, I'm thinking about the example that you want to set for those who are looking up to you. And it, principally, it, it's my children, my boys. So for me, I don't want them to see me reacting to something by by picking up a glass and throwing it or by breaking a plate or something like that, or even something smaller as just shaking my fist in the air or stomping around, you know? I want to set an example that you can take something that you disagree with but you can digest it calmly and then you can develop you can develop kind of a reaction to it but it's not it's not something that's it's not that snap emotional reaction you're coming at it rationally and you're deciding what you're going to do about it to change that situation you come at it with a proactive approach as opposed to reactive and that's the biggest thing that I would try to push on my kids and also just not to get stuck in a rigid idea I mean, especially, like I said, nowadays, everything is so divided and it's so easy to just fall into one camp and think that, oh, you know, this is the right way because they agree with me on this topic, topic, so they're probably right on this subject as well. But that's not necessarily the case. You know, we're all individual humans. We all have our own individual ideas, our own moral compasses, and it's something that we have to keep in mind. Don't worry about kind of stepping outside of conformity when the whole herd is going off a cliff like think about things rationally take it as an individual and you may have a different viewpoint or some different knowledge base that you can apply to this that the general person doesn't so really focus inwards try to find try to find solutions to a lot of these problems even if you aren't going to enact them on a grand scale Talk them out with people. You know, you can start to discuss, especially people who may not agree with you. You may have a lot in common with a lot of these crazy hot button subjects that are happening right now. Because, you know, just because somebody, say, is a conservative or a Republican, they may not agree with these riots and this event on Capitol Hill. You know, just like somebody who's on the left or liberal doesn't agree with Antifa and all that crazy shit on the left as well. So, you know, there's a lot of commonalities that we all have. It's just, it's getting off of the social media and the massive groupthink on there and where everything is just crowds and likes and you can see kind of how the overall group opinion is going. And then as soon as one person speaks out, you've got 12 people jumping on them. Try to avoid that. If you can have personal conversations, one-on-ones in person are the best, although that's obviously difficult right now, but even just 
one-on-one communication through text or whatever it may be, you can hammer out a lot more common ground and start to try to build constructive ideas. Even if it starts small, those kind of ideas can grow. They can get big and they can gain a lot of momentum. So with that, sorry it was a bit longer for a monologue episode, but I don't know, I was kind of fired up. It's kind of crazy what's going on right now. Um, 2021 sure start off with a bang. So anyway, here, I'm going to leave this one off with a quote by Carl Jung. We cannot change anything unless we accept it. Condemnation does not liberate, it oppresses. I am the oppressor of the person I condemn, not his friend and fellow sufferer. I do not in the least mean to say we should not pass judgment when we desire to help and to improve, but if the doctor wishes to help a human being, he must be able to accept him as he is, and he can do this in reality only when he is already seen and has accepted himself as he is. That's going to be it for today. I hope you guys found some value in this week's episode. If you did and are interested in more content like this, please rate, comment, subscribe, and recommend the podcast to a friend. I really appreciate all of the feedback you guys have given me to this point and look forward to hearing from you again. As always, the podcast page is the Plaid Jacket Philosopher on Facebook, at Jacket Plaid on Twitter, and at Plaid Jacket Philosopher on Instagram. That concludes this week's episode. Thank you so much for the continued support, and especially to those of you who reach out weekly with comments on the episode. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you all again soon.